This episode is brought to you by Habit Aware. What better way to start 2024 than by bringing awareness to your BFRB? My Keen 2 brings awareness to my trichotillomania by giving my wrist a gentle hug or vibration when I'm doing the scanning behavior. Bring awareness into your life by visiting barbaralley.com slash habitaware and use code LALLYLOVE for 10% off the replacement training bundle. My name's Katie Bannon, and my journey with my BFRB started when I was eight years old when I started pulling out my eyebrow hairs. So I started with just my eyebrow, and in the span of, I would say, about 30 minutes, about three quarters of my eyebrow disappeared. And no one really knew what happened. My mom discovered me and assumed that maybe I'd picked up some sort of a virus. No one at the time really was talking about trichotillomania, so that was not on my parents' radar. And that kind of started this journey of my parents frantically trying to find answers to what I was doing while I hid the behavior from them for years until they found out about, I would say, a year or so after I started pulling. You mentioned for the Washington Post that you felt from your parents' reaction that you were doing something wrong. Can you tell me a little bit Mm -hmm. more about that? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the most striking parts of my experience was this pretty instantaneous feeling, even at such a young age, that I had crossed some sort of threshold in terms of my behavior, that I had done something that I knew immediately was unacceptable and was wrong. And a big part of that was after this episode of pulling, where I was kind of in a daze, I felt like I was lost in a trance. I remember walking to the mirror in the front of my parents' house and just looking at my reflection and not recognizing the person in the mirror and immediately having this thought, oh my God, my parents are going to kill me because I looked completely transformed. And when my mom discovered me and understandably was alarmed and concerned, that just reinforced this feeling that I had done something that was incredibly wrong. And that ended up morphing into this belief that I was wrong as a person. In my journey, when I looked in the mirror, I didn't recognize myself either. And that's where my negative self-talk started. So not only did I think I was wrong, I also thought, wow, I can't believe you're doing this. You know, you're the one that's at fault. Did you have similar feelings? Yeah, I definitely did. And I think a lot of that had to do with being a girl. And, you know, we're, I think, raised as girls to focus a lot on our physical appearance. And I was a very girly little girl. And my mom loved dressing me up in these frilly dresses. And I knew that how I looked had a lot of importance. So that was a big part of my shame. And unfortunately, got reinforced by therapists who, I talk about this in the article, a therapist who told me, don't you want to be beautiful for your parents? My parents didn't understand 
the behavior. So when they found out I was doing this to myself, they lashed out at me, particularly my dad, who thought I was doing it basically intentionally to hurt them before he really understood that this was a behavior I couldn't control. So I, I got a lot of messages around me, both culturally and kind of from my family, that this was wrong and that it was my fault. And when you went to school, did you also have teachers and students kind of pointing it out as well? Yeah, I definitely faced some bullying, particularly from boys who would make fun of my face and put fingers over their eyebrows to make themselves look like me. And that was something that I struggled a lot with, particularly because school was where I really felt like I thrived. I was very focused on academics. It was this place where I felt like I really found my calling. I was so focused on my schoolwork. So the fact that I was then teased and felt alienated at school was was really devastating. And it it led to a lot of feelings of kind of isolation. I had a hard time making friends. I had certainly was not going to confide in anyone about what I was doing. So I would always lie and say that I had a virus to explain what had happened. So it was definitely challenging trying to be in elementary school. And then just as I got older, in some ways, it became even harder being a teenager, being a teenage girl, it's especially hard to look so different. So that those kinds of issues in school just became harder and harder, I would say, as I got older. And I think for me, it was hard to balance my parents. I felt like I couldn't escape my trichotillomania, that I couldn't escape it no matter what I did because I couldn't stop pulling and I'm pulling from different areas of my body now. And then to have my parents very worried about it and then to be worried about the kids at school, it felt very suffocating. Like I couldn't just be this little kid that I really wanted to be. Yeah, I I definitely felt the same way. And I think particularly because I was so focused on how well I did in school it was difficult that I felt like this was something I had no control over that sort of dominated people's perception of me. Now I was known as the girl who didn't have eyebrows instead of being, you know, the girl who was really smart and passionate and a good friend. And that felt like a aspect of my identity that got sort of taken from me. That was hard to deal with. And it definitely felt like I faced that kind of that kind of pressure in school around, you know, looking a particular way, people now knowing me for this thing that I didn't want to be known for. And then when I went home, it was sort of the same story in my family, where my parents were so afraid of the long-term ramifications of the behavior in terms of how well I was fitting in. They were worried about me being able to get a job in the future. They were worried about me ever being able to have a romantic partner. That was a big concern. And so it was kind of like I was getting bombarded with these messages at school and at home about how I could not continue doing this or I would not be able to get anything I wanted out of my life. So that was that was definitely really hard. And like you, I just kind of wanted to be a kid and define myself on my own terms But now here was this thing that sort of branded me in a particular way that didn't resonate with how I wanted to be seen. And I think with parents, especially, they want they want the cure so bad, like they don't want their child to suffer. And I get that. But as the child who was suffering, there are times where you are actually increasing my suffering. 
You know, I feel mm-hmm. like I had many moments where one time when I started to pull from my scalp, so I, so I start with my eyebrows as well. I moved to eyelashes and then scalp. And once I start with my scalp, my mom, bless her, she tried every single thing and then it wasn't working. I would pull in the bathroom by myself, you know, anytime I found my own space and they knew that. And so her idea was, well, let me, I'll sleep in your room. So mm-hmm. now not only am I, I can't even have my own bedroom to myself because she's trying so hard to cure it for me. But I'm like, oh my gosh, now I'm in the bathroom longer pulling more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely had the same cycle, particularly with my mom, who I'm very close to and was as a child. And the the problem was we got into this cycle where the more that I pulled, the more that she worried and became stressed. And the more stressed I could see I was making her, the more I pulled. <laughs> so we are really fueling each other. And it's something that she and I have talked a lot about now that I'm open about my trichotillomania is the ways that those attitudes towards my disorder, while at the time they seemed like her being a good parent and doing her due diligence to try to get me help. In retrospect, I think she is now able to see that it it was also very damaging to have this strong reaction of this behavior needs to be stopped. This behavior is the problem. And actually, in fact, what I have discovered with my BFRB is that much more of the suffering that I've experienced has related to the shame of how people saw me and how I saw myself, not the behavior itself. The polling itself, I would say, is responsible for just a fraction of my suffering. Much more of the suffering came from feeling like I was wrong, feeling shame. And all of that is stuff that was not inevitable, that could have been stopped if I had seen myself differently if my parents had responded differently, if you know my classmates had responded differently. So that's that's the sad part of it. I spoke to someone who had a drastically different experience than I did. Her parents and the way that they set everything up was that every year they would go to the school and share with the whole entire class. So no one would ask her any questions hmm. about they all knew. And to me, that was my like personal nightmare because my parents asked, do you want me to tell the school? I said, if you tell the school, I'm done. But I'm so I was so jealous. I'm like, wow, what a beautiful sense of freedom to be able to just exist. I did not have that. Yeah. Yeah. I think about that a lot. How different my life would have been if I had just been open about it earlier. And it's it actually is just devastating to think about how different those years would have been for me. Because of course, the irony for me was once I did open up, everything in my life got so much better. The rejection I always thought was just on the other side of my wig slipping or my makeup coming off never really came. The The people who really cared for me didn't care that I pulled out my hair. And once I started telling people, I was like, oh my gosh, I should have done this so much sooner. What was I afraid of? And I, it does feel like so so many years that I just spent in this this quiet suffering believing wholeheartedly that if anyone knew about this, I was going to be rejected and have nothing. And now looking back, I realized that a lot of those fears were not warranted. They were misguided. And it was the fear of rejection actually that caused so much more suffering than the rejection itself. You know, and and I I actually could have lived a really happy life even with this disorder if I had just opened up about it 
sooner. When did you and your family find the name for trichotillomania? It was about, I would say, around a year after I started polling. So this was early 2000s. And at the time, the TLC Foundation for BFRBs was in existence, but it was relatively new and there was very little conversation happening about BFRBs. I don't even think the term BFRB had been coined yet. And there weren't many people for my parents to talk to, but they did find the experts who did exist. And I think part of their struggle was that I did not want anything to do with other people who pulled out their hair. I was so convinced, even once I found out that my behavior had a name, I said things to myself like, but no one does it the way I do. No one has this strange ritual around it. You know, no one, there was always a reason that I was still alone. And I was not ready to talk to anyone about this. Other people who did this, I wasn't ready to see psychologists for a while. And so my parents struggled because they so desperately wanted to get me help. But I was extremely resistant to that help because just the thought of even saying what I did out loud was so horrifying that I I just wasn't ready to take that step. You mentioned in the article and you mentioned here already that you went to a psychologist who said, don't you want to be beautiful for your parents? And if that's Mm -hmm. the first response that you're getting for trying to get help, I wouldn't want to go back to someone else. I wouldn't want to hear that. <laughs> and and with me, in, in my experience, there were so many therapists that I had to educate as a young child who barely knows anything. And I'm explaining to you. So the thought was, well, if I'm looking for help and you don't know, then who, how can I get help? That was such a battle mm-hmm. for me to keep trying to reach out when I felt like I was getting nothing in return. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there, especially at the time, there were a lot of misguided beliefs about BFRBs and we did not have all the treatment options that we have now. And I think even psychologists who were familiar with BFRBs still treated it as if I did have more control um, than I actually did, who would imply that I was doing it somehow to get attention. I wasn't trying hard enough to stop it. There was a lot of that. And even when I was young, I was incredibly perceptive. And I knew that that was, I knew that that's how they were treating me. I knew that they didn't actually understand the behaviors. And so it it felt like in some ways, unfortunately, that the help I was receiving was reinforcing a lot of the shame. And that that just wasn't helping anything. It actually fueled the behavior <laughs> when my shame increased, then all of a sudden I'm pulling more. So that was something that was a big issue in the family was my parents are so badly trying to find answers, but the kind of answers that existed were not the kind of answers I really needed. And they reinforced a lot of the same emotions that were fueling the behavior to begin with. Were you ever misdiagnosed with another disorder? Did you know HabitAware also offers virtual peer coaching? This one-to-one peer-based program will coach you through shifting mindset, practicing healthy strategies, and creating your personal roadmap to recovery. 
To work with me, Ellen, or Anila, head over to habitaware.com slash coaching today. Yeah, we kind of went through, because I did not tell my parents what I was doing for almost a year, which is crazy to think back on. I, I don't know how I hid it for that long or even knew to hide it for that long at such a young age. It's something that's kind of fascinated me. But they had initially thought that maybe there is something happening, like an autoimmune disease. They thought at one point that uh, might be lupus. So that was a thought. I saw a dermatologist who thought it might be some kind of a skin condition. Even once we found out that I was pulling my hair, which my mom actually found out just by Googling. So she started Googling causes of hair loss. So we had seen all of these specialists and these incredibly prestigious hospitals in Boston, none of whom figured this out, that this might be a source of the hair loss. She found out about it on Google. And even once she started filling in um, my doctors about this diagnosis and telling my my pediatrician, oh, this is, this is what Katie is experiencing. It's called trichotillomania. He wrote on my chart alopecia, which is just speaks to the, the ignorance again, the, the lack of nuance in people's understanding of this, where of course alopecia and trichotillomania have the same sort of maybe visible outcome, but totally different types of conditions. So yeah, I got a lot of misdiagnoses. And even once people found out my diagnosis, it still didn't seem to land with them. I still had doctors writing something else in their charts or, you know, just not doing their due diligence and doing research into what trichotillomania was and asking me ignorant questions. And so that, that sort of continued. One of my favorite things that I mentioned, which is, was not my favorite thing at the time, the worst thing ever. But I go to a new doctor to see if I can get help for trichotillomania. And I explain to him, this is me in high school now. So I've had it for at least seven years. And I say, I have trichotillomania. I'm looking for better ways to manage this and to stop. I pull my hair out, you know, give him the whole spiel that I knew at the time. His next question to me was, do you see bugs crawling on the wall? And my mom was with me and my foot starts tapping. Like, you know, I'm I'm angry at this point. And she knew right away after, like, we got to go and we have to go somewhere else. But it was that I said, what made you think that that was the next appropriate question to ask me? Mm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. One of the interesting things is that people can't imagine people who don't have a BFRB. It's hard for them to imagine having these impulses. So they just see it as, well, you must be kind of, you know, mad or crazy. And they lump together all of these things that they associate with that. And don't think about, well, for people with BFRBs, it's the most rational thing in the world. Uh, and I talk about this a lot, is that it is such, in many ways, a brilliant way that our bodies have developed to cope. It's our hair is always with us. It's something that, you know, just affects us, right? Not other people. We're not lashing out at other people. We're doing it to ourselves. It's just something that in many ways makes a lot of sense. It's very, it's highly rational. But I think from an outsider's perspective, someone whose brain is wired slightly differently than yours or mine, it just, they can't see it that way. It has to be something that is, you know, in their words, insane or crazy. And they lump all of that together. 
to add on to that too, what is being portrayed in the media does not match how it really is. And if that's what people are seeing and they're assuming, they have an absolutely wrong idea of how we go about our polling. Yeah, definitely. I've done a lot of research because I'm working on a book about trichotillomania into how it was represented historically. And there's a statue that is in a former asylum. I don't know if it's still functioning as an asylum, but it's of a woman pulling out her hair in those chunks. And I even, I if you Google the statue, the name of the statue, and you listen to the commentary on this statue, they have like a little audio that you can listen to that describes it. And the audio just starts with a woman screaming hysterically. And this the person in the audio then talks about what's being portrayed in the statue. And he talks about this crazed woman furiously tearing out her hair. And it's just so dramatic and overblown. And you realize that that that's really the perception is that it's just this moment of wildness, insanity, and it's so different than the reality. I mean, the, the funny thing is the people who actually live with VFRBs, we know that it is so ritualized, right? And we all have these ways that we pull and there's a lot of commonalities even among, I remember the first time I, I talked to other hair pullers who like chew the roots of their hairs and like do similar kinds of things. And I couldn't believe it. But I think those of us who actually do poll know that there's so much more nuance to it. And the way that it's portrayed in the media is so different than the reality. In the article, you mentioned Life and Beth. Did you like her portrayal of trichotillomania? Yeah, I did. I, I mean, I first of all, I just valued so much that she included it and that she was willing to come out and say that this was autobiographical, that this was something that she experienced and continues to experience. I, I thought that was brave, someone who is so public that so many people know. And I, I did feel watching it, I was emotional just seeing it actually play out and knowing how many people had watched that episode and I, I thought the way that she portrayed it was well done. It didn't seem overblown to me. It felt like it was contextualized enough. And there's a, a scene with her getting a wig with her mom. And there's this kind of, she conveys some of the complexities of how BFRBs really tap into family dynamics. So I thought that the way she portrayed it was was sensitive and had a lot more nuance than most of the portrayals I've seen. I completely agree. I was crying hysterically because <laughs> even her with her bald spot and you see her little finger moving around, I mm -hmm. my, my heart was just exploding because I'm like, oh my gosh, you get it. I finally see someone who gets it and is doing justice to this disorder. Yeah. Yeah. It was amazing. Am I allowed to ask you questions about your book? Yeah, of course. What made you want to do that and how has the process been going? Yeah. So I'm a writer and I teach writing. I'm a developmental editor. So I read other people's manuscripts, essays, personal essays, memoirs, and I'm a writer myself. So I've been working on a memoir for about nine or 10 years. And it's about my experience with trichotillomania. It has 
really evolved into being a story that's about shame, what it means to live with shame and the ways that we can overcome shame, not by confining cures for what's ailing us, but being more open and integrating different parts of ourselves and accepting and loving even those parts of ourselves that we used to perceive as being wrong or damaged. And it's been quite a journey. I have written the whole book. I have an agent who's representing it. And it has been, uh, I would say the biggest challenge has been trying to convince people that this is a topic that is going to appeal to enough people, that enough people live with the FRBs, that there's a big audience for this. So that's something that I've really been trying to push for in getting pieces out there, getting my writing out there is just letting people know that these disorders are more common than things like bipolar. And some people think even anorexia. Every time I publish a piece or teach a class where I mention my trichotillomania, I have at least, you know, if I teach a class of 10 people, I have at least two people who will reach out to me afterwards and say, I do this, or my daughter does this. It's gotten to the point where I could show you hundreds of these notes that I get from people. And I'm just feeling like, my gosh, this story so needs to be told. This kind of a book needs to be out there. So that that's been my mission. And I'm kind of continuing to try to push for that. How did it feel to having the Washington Post share your piece? Did you receive an influx of comments? What were you receiving? Yeah, it was, I mean, it was thrilling. It was on the front page of the health and science section. So I actually got it framed. It It's just amazing to see it in print in a place like the Washington Post that has such a wide distribution. So that was that was thrilling in and of itself. And I think it was part of the, one of the coolest parts of it was seeing the comments from people, particularly people who say, oh my God, I had no idea this had a name. And it, it's just that feeling that you're able to completely change someone's life potentially just from the simple knowledge that they're not alone. That's so profound. And I would do it just for that. Um, just if I could even have one person understand that, you know, they are not alone in this, that there are resources, that there is a community of people for them, that that would be worth it. I certainly always get comments from people who are less kind. And I've just developed really thick skin around this. But inevitably, I get comments from people who, you know, talk about why is the Washington Post publishing pieces that are on fringe topics and, you know, people who say, what are you doing to stop this behavior? And, you know, all that kind of thing. I think that's really common. There's a lot of discussion whenever I publish a piece about treatments that people have tried. So people are very quick to point out the treatments that I did not mention because they're always, you know, you can't talk about everything in a short article. So people always, you know, point out where there are some holes and I, it just sparks some interesting conversations, I think, from people who suffer from these conditions themselves or have heard about them or have family members. And I think just the buzz around it, again, tells me that this is becoming more mainstream because I, 
I do not remember 10, 20 years ago, that being the case where there was so much conversation around these topics where so many people would have already heard of something like trichotillomania. And now it feels like when I publish a piece, most people, even if they haven't experienced a BFRB themselves, they know what it is. And and that does feel like a shift to me. So that's pretty exciting. I love where you write that it feels good. You don't want to stop. And that you are happily having a buzzed head and you can go and be yourself and you can spread awareness. Because when people would write about it, it was like, this is the cure, do this or else. There was no Mm -hmm. conversation about, I can live with this and still be happy. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, I think what's, what's wild to me now is I could not have imagined going out with a shaved head a few years ago. I started buzzing my head. My now husband started doing it when we started a couple years into dating. So this was about probably six or so years ago now. And before then, I mean, my therapist would give me challenges where I would have to, because I wore wigs for a while. She would challenge me to just step outside for 30 seconds without a wig. And even that was you know, I couldn't do anything else for the rest of the week. (laughs) It was all I could do just to even, even with no one around, take the wig off. So what's striking now is, you know, I haven't worn a wig in six or seven years. It has shockingly little bearing on my life. And that's what's kind of been incredible is that I don't feel I'm treated differently. I get more compliments on my hair than I ever did before, in fact. Most people don't assume that I even, that there's a reason. I think enough people now actually buzz their heads as a style choice that there aren't a lot of assumptions attached to it the way there were before. So that feels kind of empowering. Like even if I don't want to talk about my BFRB, I don't even have to. You know, people would think, oh, she's just rocking a buzz cut. And and that feels really nice to me. And it, it just it just doesn't affect my life to not have hair very much, which is a strange thing to say because I spent years and years thinking that this was the defining part of my life. And that was what my parents were going off of was this idea that if I don't have hair, I'm not going to be able to function in the world. And now I'm married. I live in a house. I have a full-time job I love. You know, there's just, I got all of the things that my parents were so afraid that I wasn't going to get if I kept pulling. And I still pull my hair every day. And that's still part of my life, but I'm also able to be well and healthy and happy. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Trick Talks. Did you know that I offer a Trichotillomania online course? My course is called Sharing Our Stories. As a gift to you, please use promo code TRICKTALKS25 to receive 25% off the five-session package. You can access this promotion at barbaralley.com.